Anyone claiming that America's economy is in decline is peddling fiction. I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Raising the debt ceiling does not increase our debt. It does not somehow promote profligacy. I know words. I have the best words. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. Alright, alright, what's going on everybody? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Peddling Fiction. I am your host, the voice and soul of so-called fiction, Johnny the Gentile Profita. Thank you all once again for listening, and for those of you not familiar with the show, I talk about politics, current events, sometimes economics, with a mind toward liberty, as always libertarian principles, libertarian philosophy, and what I want to talk about today, I got a couple things in my stack here, and I'm going to try to sort of weave them all together because I do think they have a common thread. might not seem like it at first, but they are all interrelated. So antitrust law has been in the news lately. There's a lot of talk about the Justice Department opening an antitrust probe into Google. There's a lot of talk about using antitrust laws to break up big tech firms, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to the Twitters. She was tweeting up a storm, as were most of the, well, at least a handful of the current Democratic presidential candidates. And there's a lot of misconceptions about antitrust law that I am going to clear up, hopefully once and for all, but I highly doubt it because there's been a lot of good work done on this topic that just seems to be either overlooked or purposely ignored by the vast majority of of the public. I think academia is getting better on the topic, but anybody who went to school in the United States certainly in the last 50, 60, 70 years. You hear all of these horror stories about unfettered capitalism in the, in the early 1900s, you know, around the turn of the century, um, the 19th century, early 20th century. It was capitalism run amok. It was the wild, wild west. We had all the, these robber barons that, would, that had monopolies on everything, they would take over an industry and they would lower their prices to drive all their competitors out of business. And then once they had a, a, a complete stranglehold on the market, once they had achieved that monopoly, they jacked their prices up. And we would all just be, we would all be held hostage to these evil monopolistic companies. And now that they've driven all their competition out of the market, we're stuck paying these absorbently high prices. There's no competition and there's nothing we can do save for the government. Government comes riding in on their white horse. You know, they'll save us from these evil monopolies, these robber barons that were such a detriment to society. 
They'll make sure that they use the power of government to help the common man and break up these big companies that have these monopolies, all in the name of innocently protecting the common good, of course. That's basically the narrative that everybody gets in school. Everybody gets growing up all throughout um, middle school, high school, even college. And it's just such a prevalent thought today. I've even had, I've had conversations with my parents who are significantly older. Um, They are approaching, you know, low to mid 70s. And my mother was one of the first women to work for Standard Oil. She was a pioneer in her field. And we were talking about her work experience at Standard Oil. And we got into the topic of monopolies and the robber barons. And we got into a little bit of an argument, which is actually not a rare occurrence in my family. But I just couldn't let it go. I couldn't let it stand because she perpetuated the actual fiction. She was a fiction peddler a true fiction peddler, not the, not of the so-called variety. And I had to set her straight. She was wrong, as usual. I was 100% right. And I, I, took to, I took to Amazon, one of these big evil corporations that's taking over the world, right? And with a couple clicks of the button, I ordered her a book, one of my favorite books on the topics. It's by um, Bert Folsom. The myth of the robber barons. And what Bert did, you know, because we hear all these stories, right? About these these robber barons, how they were they were so, you know, these these greedy capitalists, you know, they got the monocle and they're they're twisting their mustache and walking around with sacks of gold on their back. I don't know. These caricatures of of these rich fat cats dominating the marketplace at the expense of everybody else. And so what Bert did is he actually looked at the data. He actually looked throughout. He went back in history and researched these companies, researched these robber barons, looked at what actually happened, what they actually did, and what the result was. And when you dig down into the details, not this theoretical dystopian take on capitalism, what you actually see is... Nothing resembling the horror stories that you've been told. It's literally the exact opposite. What these robber barons did, what these rich fat cats did for society, what they did for the poorest people among us, was absolutely incredible. They did more to help the poorest people in the world than any government program, any socialist nation, any Bolshevik could ever dream of doing. They, they did more to save the environment. They did more to increase people's standard of living, prosperity, than anybody ever before. And what we're taught throughout, throughout school, from grade school on the way, all the way down through college, what we're taught is that if it wasn't for the government, if it wasn't for our benevolent dictators in Washington who stepped in with the Sherman Antitrust Act and said no, we're, we're here to protect the consumer, and we are going to break up any companies that get too big because it's, it's in the best interest of the, of, the, of the people for us to do that. That's the only reason we're doing this. It's, it's always for the people. Think of the children, that sort of stuff, right? That's what we're taught to believe. But what did they really do? What did Rockefeller really do? 
What did Andrew Carnegie really do? Or how about Cornelius Vanderbilt? These evil people who took advantage of, of the poorest Americans, uh, who, who brought out the worst aspects in capitalism, who proved why capitalism can't work and we need a government regulator to step in and, and make sure that the excesses of capitalism don't run amok and destroy the country? Well, let's, let's take a look, okay? So Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller, for anybody not familiar with, he was a, a famous oil tycoon, you know, big oil, ooh, okay? And what Rockefeller did was he single-handedly brought the price of kerosene down by 90%. 90%. Okay, now think about that. That's, it was, kerosene was priced at $1 a gallon, and with his monopolistic tendencies, this evil, greedy capitalist brought the price of kerosene down to $0.08 cents a gallon. He had 65% of the world's market share. Okay, And he came up with thousands of other uses, Okay, maybe not thousands of other uses, but several other uses for the wastes and the byproducts uh, of oil refinery. And it was because he wanted to make money, because he wanted to make a profit, that he took what otherwise would have been waste and converted it into things that we needed. But what, what, what he's doing when he's bringing down the price of kerosene by 90%, that means that everybody, even some of the poorest people among us, could afford to light their house. They get to stay up later. You don't have to go to bed as soon as it gets dark out. Your productivity and your leisure vastly increases. Not to mention that before that, people relied on whale oil to heat their lamps. Whale oil, yes. So we were slaughtering whales to light our house. Now you can imagine how expensive that would be to have to go out and, and kill a whale and get the oil from the whale to heat your lamp. And how many lamps do, do you get heated from one whale? I have no idea. But think about it like this, okay? All the bleeding heart liberal environmentalists out there with their protests and their petitions haven't done one millionth what Rockefeller did in terms of saving the whales. Capitalism saved the fucking whales. How about that? Not socialism, not your socialism nonsense, not government. If anything, all they did was get in his way. Same goes for paper. All the tree-hugging hippies out there can cry until they're blue in the face about saving trees. But what have they actually done to save them? What have they actually done to affect that situation at all? How about when you compare what, what they've done to what the personal computer or email, cell phones, or flash drives have done to save the trees? You see what I'm saying? Or how about Andrew Carnegie? Andrew Carnegie was another one of these robber barons that we're supposed to hate. What did he do? Well, he single-handedly brought down the price of steel by 90% from something like $160 a ton to less than $20 a ton. No big deal. Now imagine what that does for the economy, for the average person's standard of living. I mean, just about everything uses steel. Think about it. He brings the price of everything from railroads, tools, buildings, ships, automobiles down considerably and on top of that the the things that are used in the process of shipping goods comes down as well so even if you're buying a product that ha has no steel in it i guarantee you that somewhere down that production line the cost of that good is brought down substantially because the ship used to ship it was cheaper to make 
or the gasoline to transport your good was brought down by 90% by Rockefeller. Go back and listen to the episode where I talk about production processes and the higher and the lower order of productions. Every step of that production process is made cheaper so that the lowest stage of production, which is when you and I buy things, is cheaper as a result. That's what Andrew Carnegie did. He brought down the price of your goods by 90%. No government agency could do that. No committee, no council, no special council or board of advisors or productivity czar or caucus or joint committee, not even the vaunted super committee. (laughs) By the way, it's always hilarious to me the names they come up with for all their bullshit. And you guys are such idiots that you just buy into it. No, no, that's no ordinary problem that can be solved by a a, a regular committee. Oh, no, we need a super committee to take on that one. I, it's, it's cartoonish. And nobody, nobody thinks this is, this is crazy, except me and a handful of people. You know, maybe if we form a super-duper committee, we could just abolish poverty once and for all. How about that? Super-duper committee. Congress should get on that. But seriously, all the government can do is take some money from some portion of the economy, waste 80% of it, on, their, on the bureaucracy and all their bullshit, and then give whatever's left over to another portion of the economy. They can only move stuff around, shuffle things around the economy. They don't innovate, they don't produce, they don't create. And anybody can do that. Any idiot can take what others have produced and give it to somebody else. Very few people have the skills, the knowledge, the ingenuity to accomplish what these disparaged industrialists of the 19th century did. So forgive me if I don't hate these people with the same misguided contempt that you've been propagandized to maintain. Cornelius Vanderbilt is another one. He's another one of these famous famous robber barons. In fact, I think he was the first hundred millionaire in the United States. Hundred million dollars. And back then, I mean, that that is hundreds of billions of dollars in today's money. But Cornelius Vanderbilt is an unbelievable situation for a couple of reasons. Because not only did he accomplish all those things that Carnegie and the Rockefellers did, he did it in um, steamships and eventually he got into railroads. But at the time, when he started out, the government had actually granted a monopoly to two guys for 30 years on the condition that they could get a functioning steamboat up and running. So they, the government actually, I mean, the irony here is off the charts. The, not only is the government the only true monopoly, but they're the only ones that can actually grant a monopoly and, and sort of an, anoint someone else with monopolistic powers. So what the government does is they give these two guys a 30-year monopoly on steamboat sh- steam shipping. All right. And Vanderbilt is literally hired to, <laughs> to take on that monopoly, to run an alternate route without getting busted. And Vanderbilt literally just embarrasses these, these guys that are getting the government subsidies. He was charging prices that were one quarter of what they were charging. He got the price on one of his routes down from several several dollars to like six cents. Some routes, they, they, he would feed people for free on his ship. If you paid the six cents, you go on board his ship, you'll eat for free. Another route, he made, he made the fare completely free, and he just tried to sell people food. And these aren't like 
two week trips over the Atlantic. This is like up and down the East Coast, you know, a few hours or whatever. But he's able to destroy these two guys that are getting the subsidies. And eventually, I believe the government removed that monopoly. But they, they did not stop subsidizing people. So later on, this is, I think we're getting into the 1850s now. There's a guy by the name of Edward Collins. And he, he is the embodiment of everything that is wrong with government subsidies. So Edward Collins, well, what's happening at the time is England is undergoing their industrial revolution. All right. So they're, they're kind of kicking ass in manufacturing, and the United States is still largely an agrarian society. We're a very new country. We haven't, um, we haven't had our industrial revolution yet. We're getting there. But we're behind them, you know, because we're just kind of getting started. And so there's kind of this debate going on in Congress and throughout the country about what, what sort of... What sort of economic approach are we going to take to this? Are we going to maintain the ideas that the U.S. was founded on, you know, the rugged individualism, free market capitalism, very little to no government regulation, and we will let entrepreneurs with their ingenuity and their hard work and determination create products that people want, bolster the economy? Or does the government need to step in and jumpstart the economy, jumpstart certain industries? Because we're so far behind England. You know, England's already got, you know, England's thousands of years old. They've already got these, these factories up and running. They're kicking our ass in textiles. And now steamships, steamships come along and they have the opportunity to sort of revolutionize not only an industry, but life in general. Okay, so I want you to think back to what it's like to live in 1850. Today, we live in such an instantaneous society. We have everything at our fingertips. We carry around supercomputers in our pockets. It's very easy to forget what it's like to not be able to instantly communicate with somebody, to instantly, you know, a couple clicks and you've got your groceries being delivered to your house. In 1850, well, let's just say prior to that, it would take you roughly three months to get across the Atlantic Ocean, okay? So before we had steam-powered ships, we were reliant on wind, right? Sails. So you were dependent on trade winds. And, you know, sometimes it's windy, sometimes it's not. You can't exactly take a straight line because you got to play with the wind. Um, it would take three months to go across, and it would take you three months to get back. So what the steamship did was it condensed that entire, th- that entire trip down from a six-month round trip to like a three-week round trip. Okay, three and a half weeks, something like that. It would take you now like 12 days, 11, 12 days to get across and 11, 12 days to get back. And so this was a very, I know it's not a very sexy thing to think about and people don't really talk about steamships or anything like that and how important they were. But this was very, this is very revolutionary. This changed everything. And so what the government decides to do Instead of leaving that industry to chance, you know, leaving it up to to the free market to build that industry out here in the United States, they decide to give a subsidy to a guy named Edward Collins. So Edward Collins goes to Congress, says he can get this three-boat operation up and running for $3 million for the ships and about $350,000 for the first year of operation. Okay, Congress grants him the subsidy. 
He operates it for a year, comes back to Congress the next year. Lo and behold, he needs $400,000. Okay. Does it again for a year, comes back to Congress. Now he needs 500000 Okay. Then the next year he needs 600000 Congress keeps granting it. Well, finally, when he asks for $700,000, a man by the name of Cornelius Vanderbilt, a hero, goes to Congress and says, I'll do it for three hundred and fifty grand. How about that? Now, I know most of you guys would say, oh, well, here's a successful entrepreneur. He's been kicking ass in, steam, in steamship operations up and down the coast. He embarrassed our guys out of a monopoly that the state of New York tried to grant. Maybe we should take this deal. Save three hundred and fifty grand, right? Wrong. They give it to Collins again. They give him seven hundred grand. They don't think Vanderbilt can do it. He's an unknown entity, right? Well, Vanderbilt, God bless him. <laughs> he basically says, "Fuck it, I'll do it without the subsidy." You don't think I can? You don't think I could build a steamship company that can deliver mail across the Atlantic? Because th- that's what Collins was doing. That was the only way that they could actually make this constitutional. You see, back then they actually questioned whether or not the federal government could do things like subsidize a steamboat industry. And the only way that they could get around that was since the Constitution grants the federal government power to um, establish and fund postal routes, Collins was going to, in addition to delivering passengers across the Atlantic, he was going to deliver the mail back and forth. And so that was, that was the first way they got around. You know, they unshackled themselves from the chains of the Constitution, cleverly, might I add. So he does it. He, he builds a ship. And that next year... He competes with Collins, okay? The first thing he did was break records for speed. He was humming down the Atlantic, right? But he realized that 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 burned up a lot of fuel, okay? And and he doesn't have a subsidy. He doesn't get $700,000 just for showing up. So he's got to figure out all these ways, all these innovative ways to cut costs and increase efficiencies. So he starts fucking with Collins a little bit too. He'll trick Collins into think he's going faster than he really is, you know. He'll he'll keep up with him for a hundred miles or so, and Collins will Collins will speed up and he'll speed up a little bit. And then after a hundred miles, Vanderbilt will slow down. But Collins doesn't know how far behind he is, and he doesn't want to be beat. He doesn't like being being second into port, right? He likes to hang his hat on fast delivery. So Collins ends up burning through a ton of money because, you know, he's not saving on any of these fuel costs. Vanderbilt cut prices from $150 a passenger to $30 a passenger. He had food. He always had full ships, so he made up a lot of a lot of that on volume. You know, he had the, what we call an economy of scale. Collins, because it was like, I think it was like $600 a person to ride on the government subsidy ship. Very few people could afford that. So he would only be like a third full, maybe half full, something like that. And by by the end of the year, Vanderbilt was profitable. All right. So he just proved that he could run a profitable steamship company that does the exact same thing that the government subsidized one does for seven hundred thousand dollars less of, of stolen stolen money, and he could turn a profit. Not not a big profit, but he wasn't losing money. So the year goes by and Collins goes back to Congress. And if you can believe this, this year, I know it was $700,000 last year. Now he needs $858,000. Why? Well, because he's losing business to Vanderbilt. 
and he needs to compete with Vanderbilt to save the steamship industry of the U.S. so that we can overtake England and yada, 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 right? <laughs> but his, his justification for needing another $158,000 was because he's losing business to Vanderbilt. And of course, Congress grants him the 858000 because that's what Congress does. And so Collins has to compete with Vanderbilt, and the only way that he can do it is to go faster and burn through cash. And he goes so fast that he starts having all kinds of disasters. You know, the Titanic was not the only ship to hit an iceberg. Collins hit one. Ship sank. 400 people died. He had another ship that they're still waiting for in Liverpool. They're still waiting for it to arrive in England. And then he has to go back to Congress and ask for $2 million to build two more ships. They give him $1 million because they're not sure that that second ship that disappeared hadn't sunk, had, it won't turn up again. It, it, it gets, it gets com- cartoonishly ridiculous. Then, then you know, he scrambles to get that, that ship built, and it starts taking on water. <laughs> and so by the time he gets, he gets it to England... Everybody, you know, nobody dies or anything, but he can't sell any tickets to get people back on the ship for the return route. So he has to auction the ship off. He sells it for 10 grand. So the taxpayers paid a million to build the ship. He fucks it up. He can only get 10 grand for that ship. And then he goes back to Congress again because now he needs another ship. He's out of ship. But this time he only needs 990,000 and he's you know he's such a good guy. He's such a he's such a patriot. He's willing to put up ten thousand of his own money toward the endeavor. And this is the point where Congress finally, after God knows how many years and eleven million dollars later, says, "Go fuck yourself. We're done with this." Finally, and I know eleven million dollars doesn't sound like a lot, but this is at a time when the entire national debt was only thirty million. We, we wasted $11 million, one-third of the national debt, f- funding a, a worthless, absolutely worthless, and totally unnecessary steamboat operation. That's the history of subsidies in America. And so we're supposed to hate Vanderbilt. I don't know why, because he busted up a government monopoly in steamships, and he, he would have saved us $11 million back when $11 million was a lot of money and eliminated the need for a government subsidy. That's why we're supposed to hate him. Oh, and by the way, 400 people wouldn't have died in a, in a tragic boating accident because Vanderbilt never lost a ship. He never crashed into an iceberg or anything. For all this fear-mongering of the free market and these outlandish accusations that the entrepreneurs of free market would never have any incentive to protect their customers, it would be mayhem, you know, they would just be... They would sacrifice customers over profits. The government-subsidized route killed people. The entrepreneur did not. But anyways, did Congress learn the lesson of this experiment in government subsidies? Because this was, I, I believe this was the first time that the federal government subsidized an industry. Uh, of course not. No. Now, two years later, they did the same shit they did to the steamboat industry, to the railroad industry, with the same comically retarded results i i mean it's almost if you think i'm making this up i don't blame you but all this actually happened your wise overlords in washington learning the very vital lessons of the edward collins cornelius vanderbilt debacle instead of subsidizing one company to build railroads across the country 
they start paying two companies you know, to create competition. That, that's their glorious solution. That's their grand plan. That's the lesson that they learned from Collins. Not that we shouldn't subsidize anybody. Not that there's probably an entrepreneur out there that can figure out how to do it profitably. That we just need to subsidize two companies so that there's this artificial sense of competition. And that, that, will, that, will, that will create the, the conditions for, for market competition. So we have the Union Pacific and the Central Pacific. And they paid these two companies based on how much track they laid. Oh, and if they went over mountains, they got more money, right? So, so what happens? Well, one of the companies it starts building in the middle of the winter on top of ice. So they laid all this track, and they get all these government reimbursements, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for laying all this track, but it was on fucking ice, and it was unusable. So they got to do it again, all right? And now, you know, since they're being paid by the mile, do you think you're getting really straight lines as a, as a crow flies? They're building tracks across the country? Or do you think you got nice winding tracks that go round and round and round, eating up as much track as possible so that they can bilk more money, more subsidy money from the federal government? Yeah, well, that's what they did. So you have winding tracks, wastes of, waste of resources, waste of time, and then when they get to the mountains, what do they do? Well... You know, you, you can't just go straight up a mountain with, with railroad tracks. You, you can't exceed a certain, a certain degree of incline. I don't know what it is, five, seven degrees. But whatever it is, they just completely ignored it. You know, two to three times that level of, of incline, and they would just lay tracks. That would be 100% unusable. But you see, they never said nothing in their government contracts said the tracks had to be usable. So they're just wasting all this money, all these resources. The competition is a farce. And then when they start getting close to each other and their gravy train, pun intended, is about to end, what happens? They start fucking blowing up the other company's railroad tracks so they don't get the credit for it and so that they can build. And so now you have, you have two companies laying tracks, and then in the middle of the night, you got guys from Union Pacific going over to the Central Pacific tracks and blowing up all the shit that they did. And then, of course, Central Pacific, the next night, would retaliate against Union Pacific. So now they're just laying track and blowing it up. Laying track, blowing it up. This is your government. This is how they operate. Meanwhile, you've got a guy by the name of James J. Hill who privately owned and operated a railroad that he started in Minnesota, Went all the way to, I think, around Seattle. He, he built it and ran it without subsidies. He was profitable. He brought the cost of fares down over time. When all of the other railroads went broke, he was making a profit. When he got to the Rockies, instead of laying unusable track over inclines that were way too steep, he, he looked at what Lois and Clark did. And Lois and Clark had, had passed through those mountains, and they found the lowest point. And so he, he laid his track through that. So, anyway, I'm getting sidetracked here. The silver lining with all of this is that after the debacle with the railroads, the vast majority of these government subsidies for companies dried up, and the U.S. became a leader in steel, a leader in oil. We were, we were crushing it. That's what brought about these rah barons, the Carnegies, the Rockefellers that we're supposed to hate. 
the ones who who vastly improved the, the the lives of everybody in society the most liberty we've ever had and the most economic growth we've ever had was was probably from the post civil war era to the early 1900s you'll know, call it 1913 because that's possibly the most destructive year in US history you know we got the federal reserve and the income tax but for that that 60 year period or so the US saw the greatest increase in the standard of living the world had ever seen and it's because of these so-called robber barons it's because of these vilified entrepreneurs who brought the the price of steel down 90% who brought the price of oil down 90% that we were able to go from an agrarian society to an industrial society from farms to cities we went from horses to cars. Think about it. For thousands of years, man had been living basically one way. You know, we, we had some domesticated animals. You rode on horseback to get around. You had outhouses. Now all of a sudden you've got indoor plumbing, automobiles, airplanes, electricity. All of the modern amenities that we currently enjoy have their roots in this period. And yes, they've gotten better and more advanced, but very few things as revolutionary as, as what took place. We're, we're basically building on the creation of what these guys came up with, you know, adding minor improvements. It's kind of like when the iPhone comes out every year, and they, they move the, the headphone jack around or the camera gets a little better. It's like comparing that to when the first iPhone came out and how revolutionary that was. And this changed the world. Millions of people were pulled out of abject poverty. And I mean real poverty. Not like, the, not like what we see today. We're, we're talking a dollar a day. Something like 95% of people in the 1800s lived on a dollar a day. And we did it without or in spite of government intervention. Without a minimum wage, without an income tax, without Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid or welfare without a Department of Education or a Department of Energy or Commerce. I think that was, yeah, I think uh, Commerce was created in the early 1900s, so a lot of this stuff was well underway. We had nothing but a free, unfettered marketplace. And, well, it couldn't have been all good, right? Because if it was, if it was so glorious as I'm describing, why did, we have the, why did the government need to come in and pass the, anti, the, the Sherman Antitrust Act, right? Presumably for the reason that they always intervene, just innocently for our own protection, our own good, so we don't get taken advantage of. But it's like I said, there are always jealous, envious people out there. Never underestimate the power of envy. Because those who couldn't compete with the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, you know, the Edward Collinses of the world, well, they don't like losing. They don't like their gravy train ending. They don't enjoy going bankrupt. It's not fair, they say. These guys have too much market share. I can't compete with their prices. So they complain. They complain to their congressmen. And if you dig into the origins of these antitrust complaints, Tom DiLorenzo has done an incredible amount of work on this. He's the guy that actually went back through history and looked at all these companies that were, that were being subject to these, these antitrust laws. And when you actually look at it, the complaints never come from the customers. 
They don't come from the people like you and me who are enjoying a 90% price reduction in the price of oil. Imagine if the price of gasoline to fill up your car just went down by 90% over your lifetime instead of going up by, you know, whatever percentage it's gone up by in my lifetime, you know. I remember when I was a kid, there was a gas station around a, a few blocks from my house and it was it was going out of business and they opened ah oh god sometime in the early 1900s, you know, 1925 something like that. And so for their going out of business shebang, they were selling gas for the original price of a gallon of gas when they opened their doors in the early 1900s. And it was like seven cents a gallon, 13 cents a gallon, something like that. Something ridiculous. People were lining up for fucking blocks, waiting hours to get their car filled up. Imagine if we had that today. But anyways, it's always the competitors that can't deliver those kinds of returns, that can't reduce the price of of the things you're paying for by 90%, that can't hang in the big leagues, as they say. It's always the competitors who lobby the government to intervene on their behalf. And it's only for their benefit. It's not for the benefit of the country. It's for the benefit of the competitors. They get to stay in business. They get a leg up, maybe. Congressmen get donations to their campaigns. They get to stay in office. And you and I are stuck paying artificially high prices. So these antitrust laws, these were born out of, out of the idea that government is here to save us from the evil free market monopolies, right? But you hear these, you know, these stories of the, the golden age of antitrust when there was rampant monopolization of the economy and, and our government, you know, the white knight comes along and rescues us. And what, what Tom DiLorenzo points out is that that, that period of the robber barons that I just kind of went over with Vanderbilt and Rockefeller and Carnegie, the prices went down during the entire time. We had deflation in the entire period in which all these evil monopolies were supposedly taking advantage of us. You know when you were a kid and you were with your grandpa or your grandma and they would tell you that whatever you were currently consuming, like a, a candy bar or whatever, oh, you know, back in my day, that would cost a nickel, a nickel for that candy bar, right? When they were growing up, it was so cheap. And now it's like $2 for a candy bar or whatever it is. Well, when your grandpa was a kid and his grandpa was telling him the story, it was the exact opposite. It was how everything was so much more expensive when he was a child. And that prices have come down because we had the robber barons bringing the price, the, the cost of goods down by 90%. In all of these industries, being accused of monopolization under the Sherman Antitrust Act, They were the fastest price cutting of any industry and their output increased more than anything else. That's why they were being targeted by their competitors because others couldn't compete with them. You know, there is some truth to this theory that companies are going to lower their prices. They're going to get them as low as they can to try to drive their competitors out of business. That we see. We saw that time and time again. What we don't see is the second part of that. When all their their competition is gone, they're supposed to jack their prices up, right? That's the part you never see. And and there's a reason for that. There's a couple reasons for that, actually. I mean, it sounds plausible, right, that that these companies like Amazon could lose hundreds of millions of dollars as they're driving their their competitors out of business. 
and then once everybody's gone, they can they can jack their prices up. But the idea that a company has some sort of war chest of profits that they can just take losses year after year while they drive others out of business is insane. Your, your competitors can shut down temporarily while you're losing tons of money, and you're losing it on a much bigger, if you have, let's say you have a monopoly, right? You have 90% of the market share, then you're taking those losses in proportion to your market share. So the larger you are, the larger your losses will be. And then, of course, once you try to raise your prices, there's nothing stopping other companies from entering the market. That's what keeps pressure on prices to stay low. You know, think about what you're asking asking a company to do here you're asking them to take huge losses on 90 percent of their market share while you drive your competitors out of business for god knows how long that's going to take on the hopes that someday you'll be able to to raise your prices without competitors entering the market and then you'll really reap all the benefits and that's assuming that there's no technological advancements or that the the entire market doesn't shift away from you how well do you think that proposal is going to go over at a board meeting at Walmart? Walmart's a great example. They've been around like for as long as I can remember. Are they jacking up their prices yet? They've been driving all these mom and pop stores out of business, all their competition. When are, when's Walmart going to start jacking those prices up or Target? Oh, that's right. They can't because now they have to compete with Amazon. Amazon started in Jeff Bezos's garage. All right, there's always another Jeff Bezos waiting in the wings. Burning the midnight oil in his garage, waiting to take you down. So you can't rest on your laurels. You never get to jack up your prices. You don't see it. You never see it. You never see that, that second half of it where the prices get jacked up. And there's also a mechanism to keep that process in check. There's, there's a market mechanism to prevent that from happening. And it's called minimum and maximum resale contracts. Okay? So... Think, let's let's take Walmart, right? Walmart has a supplier of a product, right? We'll call them widgets. Now, the supplier of those widgets wants to sell as many widgets as possible because that's how they make their money, okay? And so when they have the contract with Walmart, they put in place minimum and maximum resale prices for Walmart to abide by. So meaning that Walmart cannot sell them for less than X number of dollars and Walmart cannot sell them for more than Y number of dollars, okay? Because that, that company, that distributor knows that if Walmart sells it for less than X number of dollars, they're not going to make any money on their product. And they also know that if Walmart tries to sell it for more than Y number of dollars, they're not going to sell any. That's too expensive. The market won't bear it. And so there is a market mechanism in place to, to check, to keep these so-called predatory pricing schemes from ever taking place, even if they, they were able to be successful, which they also have proven not to be. The other funny thing about all these antitrust laws being enforced is that by the time the government gets around to actually working on it, to actually trying to enforce their laws, the market has, has solved the problem. I'll give you, you know, IBM. IBM started being sued in the 1960s for violating antitrust acts, the antitrust laws. And by the early 80s, the government was still working on this on this process. You know, this big bumbling bureaucracy with all their red tape and their committees and their whatever. 
And, and by that time, IBM's supposed monopoly had been completely obliterated by Microsoft. Microsoft had totally cut into their market share because IBM made a bet that no one would want a personal computer. <laughs> Oops. And so when you look at the statistics on, on market share over time, and you don't just take snapshots, you will see that those at the top that have the most market share always descend toward the median. And those that are on the bottom with the least amount of market share rise toward the median. The market handles this. There is no need for the government to get involved. By the time they do, the market has already solved the problem. You know, you're creating this, this moral hazard. The government's never intervening on your behalf for your own good. It's always on the behalf of whoever is bribing them. You know, look at Uber and Lyft. The largest price increases, as far as the ride-sharing companies are concerned, have come about from government policies, forcing them to surcharge. Why? Because they're trying to protect the taxi cab industry that's been lobbying them to do so. You know, sur- extra surcharge for this, extra surcharge for that. Or you're picking them up from the airport, extra surcharge. How much more are we paying for Uber and Lyft so that a dying taxi cab industry can stay afloat for a few more years? Why are we doing this? And for all their fear-mongering, for all their propaganda, you never see consequences from any of these supposed monopolies, ever. You don't see this because they can't. They can't do it. The second they start to increase prices, competitors begin entering the market again. The more money there is to be made, the more attractive that industry becomes. So the free market, as I just demonstrated, is incapable of monopoly in the true evil sense of the word. The only way a company can maintain a stranglehold on a market share is to offer somebody something nobody else can at a price that nobody else can at a quality higher than anybody else can. Now, where's the harm in that? There's no other way for them to do it in a free market. Now, can you think, here's my challenge to all you listeners out there. Can you think of one? One measly fucking service currently provided by government where the price has gone down, even by a penny, even by a fucking penny. Or is it constant fare increases for riding buses and trains, constant increases for license plates, city stickers, constant increases in the cost of parking for driver's license, constant increases in the cost of acquiring permits, Constant increases in the cost of education, of providing health care. Constant increases in the cost of military operations, of providing security, police, and fire. Of course. Of course it is. Why? Because the government is the only real monopoly. That's why. They have no competition. And since they have no competition, they have no motivation to improve. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is outraged that these defense contractors are fleecing the federal government. As I just showed you with the case of Edward Collins, the government has been getting fleeced trying to subsidize industries since it began doing so 200 years ago. They will never be careful with your money because they don't reap the consequences of the waste and they never had to work to attain it. They will never be able to provide better, faster, cheaper services because they have no motivation or no profit and loss system to force them to do so. So the solution, 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and all you bureaucrats out there walking around trying to stomp on all these scattering roaches that are government waste, fraud, and abuse, the solution is the same solution for any infestation. You don't stomp out the ones you have and hope that the roaches that replace them do better. You find the nest and you eliminate the source. The only logical solution to the corruption and abuse of power of the government is to eliminate the powers that enable the government to be corrupted in the first place. As long as they are wielding a $4.5 trillion wand and authority over every aspect of our daily lives, there will always be people lobbying for that influence. It is insane to me that people don't understand this. Like we just need to vote in better people. AOC herself was just advocating for a $4,500 raise for her and her colleagues. Of course. Of course she was. How millennial of her to be on the job for less than a year and think she's, she needs a raise. But her rationale and that of all the brainwashed numbskulls that worship at the altar of the government was that if we don't give them a raise, they will be more likely to succumb to bribery and corruption. She openly admits it. She admits that she is incapable of maintaining moral standards. She literally is saying, pay me more or I will take bribes that will force me to act against your interest. I know, I know, I'm supposed to be your representative, but look, I need more money or I'll just be tempted to take bribes. That's what she's saying. Think about what they're revealing to you. That's her solution to these perverse government incentives. Give me more money or we'll be forced to do bad things. We can't help it. You know, and as if $4,500 would do anything to deter that. When companies spend millions of dollars lobbying and politicians need millions of dollars to get reelected, no amount of salary increase will stop that. No amount of voting will fix this. Listen, you idiots. We've been at this for hundreds of years. The problems keep getting worse and worse. If what you were doing was the answer, we would have solved this by now. It's so obvious if you aren't a member of the cult that what you're doing is an exercise in futility. You're doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. You will only get more of the same. The solution cannot be to give more money and more power to government so that they can subsidize more things that they deem beneficial. Doing that would have the same disastrous results as it did when they subsidized the steamboat industry under Edward Collins, or they subsidized the railroad industry with Union Pacific and Central Pacific. When you get subsidies, there is no incentive to innovate, to increase efficiencies, to cut waste, fraud, and abuse or to bring prices down. Our most recent example of this, graced my computer screen this morning, was the government's free lunch program is horribly dysfunctional. According to the Office of Management and Budget, the National School Lunch Program lost nearly $800 million owing to improper payments in fiscal year 2018, while the school breakfast program lost $300 million. Okay, is any of this ringing a bell? Does any of this sound familiar? And guess what happened? Enter a yogurt company, Chibani. Chibani has picked up the tab for unpaid school lunches in the Rhode Island School District. Does any of this sound familiar? Failed government subsidy programs, free market capitalism coming to the rescue. But obviously, 
that's not a, a permanent fix. There's no way that you can ask the free market to pick up the tab of all these government mismanaged subsidies. The article continues, in, in 2018, U.S. taxpayers spent $17 billion on these two federal school lunch programs combined. Yet for decades, these programs have been plagued by misspending, improper payments, services provided to ineligible children, as the Government Accountability Office report explains. Over the last four years, these programs have had improper payments of 16% and 23% respectively. And according to the latest Government Accountability Office report, the estimated errors of 2018 were lower than in prior years only because the Department of Agriculture changed what it considered to be an improper payment. So that, that's the government's solution to losing $900 million or whatever it was in, in previous years. It's like, oh, man, we're, whew, we're really taking it on the chin. What if we just change how we define improper payments and then we can just cross that off the books? The other thing they did to clean up their books was in 2010, Congress and the Obama administration expanded the school meal programs through a provision in the Healthy and Hunger-Free Kids Act. God, I love these names. Who could be against healthy and hunger-free kids, right? The provision was called the Community Eligibility Provision. And as the Heritage Foundation research explains, this provision allows school districts and even groups of schools located in the same area where 40% of the student enrollment is eligible for federal assistance to offer free meals to all students. So there you go. No more improper payments because everybody's eligible. Problem solved, right? Except that the entire purpose of these meals is to help children in need and not just feed everyone's kids for free. So earlier this year, their research found that more middle and upper income students have taken advantage of the free meals since lawmakers enacted the community eligibility provision. Shocking. So there you go. There's your, your newest government subsidy. Are they increasing efficiencies, cutting waste, fraud and abuse? Are they bringing the cost of the program down? Do they have any incentive to innovate? Of course not. What do they do? Well, they changed the definition of an improper payment so that the, it doesn't look like the program's doing as bad as it is. And then they open it up to everybody. Costs explode. The, true, the, the original purpose of, of the program is lost in the wind. The problem with government is that it is the only true monopoly in any sense of the word. It has no competition and therefore no motivation to improve. In fact, it's just the opposite. They're incentivized to fail. What happens when they fail? Well, let, let's take a look at, I guarantee you that this, this lunch program will get more funding now. The report comes out that the program's a disaster. The bureaucrats involved in screwing up whatever the program de jour is, in this case, the school lunch program, they come out and say, hey, we need more funding, just like Edward Collins. They need more money. They need more control. They need more power. And of course, Congress has to oblige. Think of the children. So the more they fail, the more money they receive. Contrast that with free market solutions, right? When you fail in a free market, you lose your customers. You don't get to hold them hostage like the government does. They have other options. They can go to your competitor if they're unhappy with your performance. You lose money. You lose your livelihood. You lose your business. So you do everything imaginable to succeed, to solve problems, to increase efficiencies, to make damn sure your customers are satisfied. 
Government bureaucrats have every incentive in the world to do the exact opposite. The more they exacerbate a problem, the more funding they get. Look at the school lunch program. Look at all these people that need this, the, the school lunch program now. This is 40% more than we thought we were going to need. We, we spent $800 million more. We need more funding. Look at all these poor kids that need the food, right? It's why government organizations always brag about how many people they get sucked into the roles of their programs. Their measurement of success is increasing the number of people on welfare, increasing the number of people on school lunch programs, because it justifies their existence. You see? Look how many people need our help now. Man, we thought it was only like $300 million worth. Turns out it's $800 million worth. Man, better give us some more money so we can help all these people. Private charities, philanthropists, it's the exact opposite. They're concerned with actually pulling people out of poverty. They brag about how many people they were able to support to the tune of getting them out of their program because they no longer needed it. They don't see success in increasing the number of people using their services. Their successes come from showing how many people they were able to advance from the position of needing their services to no longer requiring charity at all. That's a true success. And somehow, through a lifetime of propaganda and indoctrination, the government has been able to convince you that they are the saviors, that they have some sense of moral superiority, that they're just out trying to help us all, that they themselves are the ones helping others and solving problems. When in reality, all they are saying when they claim they're going to fund one of these programs is that they will go steal money from some people and give it to others. I'm sorry, you do not have the moral high ground when you advocate for that. You're not being charitable by demanding the government take money from other people and give it to the less fortunate. True charity comes directly from you. If you support a cause, if you believe there is a problem that needs to be addressed, take some actual responsibility. Stroke a check, pull out your wallet, or donate some of your time. Passing the buck to a government program should not give you a sense of moral superiority or satisfaction or pride. You didn't do anything noble. You haven't helped the situation. As I've just gone over in excruciating detail, odds are you've made everything worse. You've in reality advocated and supported theft and coercion in an attempt to achieve what you believe to be a noble end. You see, government will never be the answer to your problems. They will never make your life or the lives of the less fortunate any better. Government does not care about you. They are selfish, fallible creatures just like the rest of us. The difference is that they've created a system where they get rich at the expense of everybody else while enjoying this false sense of moral superiority and demonizing free market entrepreneurs. And I'm sure there's no shortage of, se- of selfish, greedy, free market entrepreneurs either. That's not the point. The beautiful thing about a free market is that in order for those greedy individuals to get their paws on all the things that they desire, they have to provide a product or service that people want. They have to actually solve a problem in society. It's only by helping others and solving problems that an entrepreneur can make money. And it is only by creating and exacerbating problems that a bureaucrat can make theirs. The sooner you realize this, the sooner you recognize that you're being fleeced, 
that you've bought into a system where you're being enslaved and you don't even realize it, that you've got the worst case of Stockholm Syndrome the world has ever seen, the sooner we can start to implement real change, to solve real problems, to bring more wealth and more prosperity to more people than ever before. But if we continue down this path of blindly following government snake oil salesmen who claim that they're the only solution to our problems, if we continue to absolve ourselves of responsibility not only to ourselves but to our fellow man and push those responsibilities off on government, we will meet financial ruin the likes of which none of us have ever seen. There will be more economic stagnation, there will be more poor and dependent people, and more misery than ever before. This I can guarantee. Government has never and never will be able to achieve the gains that millions of people can, voluntarily exchanging and engaging one another based on their own self-interest. The poverty rate from 1900 to the mid-1960s, when these government welfare programs were practically non-existent, fell from 95% to around 12 to 15%. What happens? Well, Lyndon Johnson steps in with his plan for a great society and declares a war on poverty. Right? He ramps up every poverty program imaginable. They've spent more money on attempting to solve poverty than the Bolsheviks could have ever imagined having. Trillions of dollars. Trillions and trillions of dollars. And what do they have to show for it? Well, they have a poverty rate of around 12 to 15%. That's right, exactly where it was when they started. They took the incredible trend of prosperity that the free market capitalist, capitalist system was creating, and they stopped it dead in its tracks. 60 years and trillions of dollars squandered, we have exactly as much to show for it as we did with the 11 million and the Edward Collins steamship debacle. A couple of sunken ships. Nothing, nothing to show for it. Don't you think that if government was really the answer to these types of problems, if government could solve one-tenth of what they purport to be able to solve, don't you think they would have done it by now? You're being played for a fool. They are tugging at your heartstrings, taking advantage of your good nature, of your desire to help your fellow struggling Americans, and they're stealing from you, from all of us, to line their own pockets. Take a look at the richest counties in America today. They're all in and around Washington, D.C. and New York City. The fat cats in Washington and the fat cats on Wall Street. Those are the ones that are benefiting from this disgusting system that they've set up. They are a parasite, and we are the host. And the poorest among us, the most vulnerable in America, will never be helped by the parasite. They need the help from a wealthy, healthy host. The more the government parasite grows, the worse position we as the host are in to actually truly help the people in need and solve the problems of society. So if you want to become part of the solution and stop being part of the problem, if you want to actually bring about change for the better, it has to come from us, the individual. We have to take responsibility. And the first thing you can do, the easiest thing you can do, is for you to continue to listen to this show and spread these ideas. I need you to share the show. I need you to support the show so that we can start to reach more people. You can go to our website, peddlingfictionpodcast.com, and support us monetarily from there. 
every dollar that comes in goes right back into supporting the show, providing content, and increasing our reach. You can go on iTunes or Stitcher and give us a five-star rating. Tell your friends. Follow us on Twitter at Pedal Fiction. There, there are too many of us out there following false prophets of government. You don't have to be one of them. So if you can do all that, I promise that I will keep coming back to help spread these ideas. Until then, just remember to keep on peddling that so-called fiction.